Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Ferruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this The Legends podcast with Sarah Faruya Coaching. I'm Sarah Faruya, and I believe there are many ways to lead a life, and everybody has stories. And today, I have another movement specialist with us today for my very fucking creative series, season five. That is Tanya Koch. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Sarah. Nice to see you. You too. Very excited to be here. Great. So the first question I ask all my guests, Tanya, before I give you your rock star introduction is Mm -hmm. tell me a story. So everybody has stories. So tell me a story that's had an impact and influence on you or that you think is quite interesting to tell. Okay. I'll tell a story from my life. Oh, and it's, it happens in Japan. The first time I came to Japan and I was thinking about whether I would move to Japan with my then boyfriend, Kentaro. Mm -hmm. And I was a bit overwhelmed and sort of anxious about this. This is a big decision, Mm -hmm. leaving the UK, everything I knew, everyone, all my contacts. But I had a moment where I was in the sea and I was just sitting in the shallows and I noticed my body moving, my arms flowing in the water. And I realized I'm not moving my arms. They're being moved by the water. The tide is moving me and I like it. And it made me think of seaweed and the way that seaweed is anchored to the bottom of the ocean. But it just, on top of that, it sways completely at the mercy of the tides. And so I decided at that point that, first of all, I would make a show about seaweed. Mm. And second, that I would live my life like seaweed, anchored in something strongly, but allowing me, myself, to be pushed around by the tides and not resist, allow myself to be led by the influences around me. The end. How's that worked out for you then? How, how, I mean, how did that change things for you and how has that influenced mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, I did make a show and the first, the main title was a Seaweed Story, but the subtitle was something like The Marriage of Logic and Lunacy. 
Mm. Because I'd always seen myself as a logical person and I did logic as part of my degree. And so when I started to think about uh, seaweed and allowing the lunatic, which is related to the moon, seaweed, um, I sort of, it was like welcoming the two parts of me at the same time, trying to hold the two parts of me at the same time. And yeah, they're, they're still in me. It's sort of, I'd say for a while, when I first had this sort of big transition in my life, which I'll probably tell you about in a little bit later, I sort of went, veered strongly on the side of lunacy. <laughs> and the logic went out the window. Bravo. <laughs> and there were things like, I, started, I just got fed up with words. I thought words are, words are sort of so old fashioned. And, you know, I want to just express myself with my body. So I went very extreme in one direction. And then gradually I've sort of learned to enjoy both and use both at different times. So the logic and the lunacy are a little more at peace inside me. How do you know when you're going too far in one or the other direction? And how do you bring yourself back? That's an interesting question. I don't try. Huh? I think I just know that life well, maybe I suppose if it got dangerously extreme in one direction, maybe I just haven't got to that stage. There's always something that seems to pull me back. Mm-hmm. Something happens. And I think it's probably good. I'd like to allow myself to go a little bit further than I might dare. Ooh. And just trust that. I'm thinking particularly about going towards lunacy. Lunacy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and trust that... By now, I'm anchored enough in the, on the ocean bed. Yes. That however far I get pulled in one direction, I'll still stay rooted, grounded, mm. anchored. Um, but mm. it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, I say that with also with awareness that there, there is a risk. <laughs> <laughs> with some caution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I, suppose, I think probably I could rely on loved ones to say something at some point. Uh, what about, thought, sorry. What about when you go too far in the logic direction? What happens then? Oh, that's a nice question as well. People pay me for this. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> um, I get annoyed with myself quite. Yeah, quickly. me too. So I have, I have a stronger sort of self-regulator on that. It's like, oh, that's so boring, Tanya. <laughs> Not, I mean, I love logic. Yeah, me too. I really do. I love Excel spreadsheets. Oh, no, not that. <laughs> ah, this, yeah, no, no, I, I really do. I get, I find beauty in logic. I'm thinking also of the kind of logic you would find in a Bach fugue. Uh, okay, yeah. So logical that, you know, the, the beauty is is what you feel most. And it's only by kind of actively stopping yourself and saying, okay, I'm going to analyze the logic. And then you see all the patterns, the perfection of it. And then you acknowledge the logic. But as I'm listening to it, I'm not thinking. I'm just lost in the beauty. Um, now, I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, a lot of your dances and a lot of your performances are like fugues. And then I realized actually one of the ones I've seen was called Tokyo Fugue. <laughs> so um, nice. <laughs> that's not yeah. me being a genius at all. <laughs> Um, so with that, um, since yeah. we've kind of seeked into talking about your movement uh, specialty, yeah. I'd like to jump into your 
bio. So Tanya yeah. Koch. Tanya Koch is artistic director of Tarinai Nanaka, a physical theater company she runs together with Kentaro Suyama from their base in Osaka, the Flying Carpet Factory. <laughs> the company specializes in corporeal mime, an art form centered on the creativity and physical expression of the actor. As well as the company, they run a full-time school where they are busy nurturing the next generation of actor creators. Originally from the UK, Tanya began her career as a management consultant working in London and Paris. She is also a qualified mediator and writes articles about communication and conflict management. She is the Japan Ambassador for the Royal Society of Arts, the RSA, and a board member of the RSA Japan Fellows Network. You can find her all over social media, and we'll get those links at the end of the conversation. She's also, I mean, I've been to see a few of her performances, and they are absolutely terrific. Uh, really something else. There's, there's voice involved, there's words involved, there's fugue involved, that kind of repetition as she was talking about with Bach before where things are just slightly different with each repetition but also the same and also patterned um she is a terrific mediator I've also attended her mediation workshops um because I'm just such a curious lifelong learner kind of person I never usually refer to myself like that but really great and she's just a lovely lovely um, a brilliant spirit with so much integrity. I think that's a word that I would use to describe you uh, uh, really strongly is a terrific amount of integrity. And um, a fun fact about us is we went through a six month uh, leadership journey together called Flourish back in 2014, 2015. And funnily enough, I just found two, uh, a few of the photographs from that as I was emptying my Dropbox out because I'm going to transfer everything over today and I was like oh that's nice I must go on Facebook and say hi to that group and just reconnect with everybody and that was quite the journey wasn't it that was quite yeah. a, an interesting uh, <laughs> yeah transformative uh, thing I was a uh, one of the lead coaches and Tanya was one of the uh, attendees but actually when most coaches will tell you that when you're taking people through a journey program, you're on the journey as well. So it was a, it was a really interesting experience. And in mm. fact, Zoe, who was um, in this series, uh, the dancer Zoe, was also one of the coaches on that, one of the dancers, dance coaches. So I'm loving that I've got all these movement specialists in mm. here as well. Mm. So, and let's yeah. just remind me, I just had a flashback. I hadn't thought about the Flourish program for a while. No. Seven or eight years ago, you're saying that is. Unbelievable, like right? 2014, it started to 2015. And I suddenly remembered, I think it was, maybe it was the last, one of the wrapping up sessions was kind of what's your big breakthrough or kind of discovery about yourself? And mine was something like, I can be normal. <laughs> I Something like, I'm normal, I think. It was a time, I mean, that ha it has a special meaning to me at yeah. that time. Mm -hmm. It was something like, I, because it was such a, a together journey, I felt more connected to people around me right. than I had done for a while. I'd felt sort of different. Like a bit of a loner. Having, yeah, yeah. From having moved from the UK to Japan and, and all the obvious differences that you feel from that. And also having left the world of management consulting and gone into the world of physical theater. So lunacy, <laughs> lunacy. Yeah, that's what I was telling myself. <laughs> and then I suddenly realized 
okay, that's one role I can play, but I'm also yeah. normal in the sense that, you know, I share all these challenges with other people. I'm just another one like everyone else. Ooh. And that was a really lovely, really lovely and surprising discovery. Thank yeah. You. Thank you for that. <laughs> and you're far from normal, but I understand what you mean. It means that like your way of leading a life perhaps is perfectly is is equally as good as the next person's or something along the or equally as valid or equally as I don't know what do you it was something I suppose along the lines of for me I was feeling a bit alienated from my fellow human beings yes yes and I didn't want that I didn't like to feel like I was I was you know different yeah and kind of reconnected me because it was you know a group of us going through this journey together and we we bonded and we really felt out the fact of being on a shared journey and and I think everybody respected each other as well a great deal. Like you walked in and nobody was like, who's this? <laughs> well, I hope not. I'm glad you say that. <laughs> no, 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 but for, for each person as well, you know, there's that, that, and especially as you had taken this massive leap of faith and you were doing something, I think there was other people there as well. There was a dancer, there was a mask maker, there was, you know, there was a lot of creative people on that. There was an interpreter, there were there were people who were in the corporate there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, me, who was not far into my kind of independent journey as well. But there was no hierarchy. It was yeah. everybody was there and yeah. respected each other and had something to bring to the table that everybody else wanted and needed. And yeah. uh, everybody saw each other in that way. Mm. So yeah, nobody nobody was like, who's this? <laughs> it's just very, very um, non-hierarchical, I think, in that way. Yeah. 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 And it is a massive leap of faith to go from being a management consultant to kind of throwing yourself full time into this kind of artistic life. Um, I remember when I met you, I was so impressed. I was really like, wow, all right. <laughs> this is great. I love, I remember the first PowerPoint you showed me about the movement and all the, the way that you looked at things. So we'll talk about that later, no doubt, but mm-hmm. what I'd love mm-hmm. to ask you first is if you could tell us about your childhood, your background and your upbringing. Okay. Gosh, I haven't spoken about this for a long time. This is going to be nice. Interesting. Oh. <laughs> childhood background and upbringing. Uh, my mother comes from the Philippines originally, and she's half Filipina and half, well, American. Her, her father was an American national, but his parents were European Jews who moved to America. My father, who died two years ago, is, was, was British, mm-hmm. but he spent his life, he was born in Sri Lanka, and he has lived in many different countries. So I so suppose the first thing to say is I'm I'm a gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was yeah. just like from nomad stuff. Yeah, nomadic. Yeah. And here I am now in Japan. I think yeah. previously had no no contact with Japan up until the, you know, my late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um so there's that. And then in terms of where I lived, I was born in the UK in the home counties in Bucks. And then my Buckinghamshire. Father, Buckinghamshire. Yes, so what's that like? East or west? It's just west, northwest. That's- that is northwest of London, of London, but very, and it's kind of commuter. Yeah, it's barely outside London. It's pretty much London. Yeah. And at the age of two, my father was posted to Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. He was working with the government. And so we spent two years in Northern Ireland in the kind of place where we lived on a, a military camp. Yes. Military base. So in order to enter, there were 
people with guns, men with guns, and there was always this sort of threat of of, of violence in the air. I, I remember it that um, even though I was just two years old. And then age four, I came back to the we came back to the UK. And age six, my dad was posted to Germany. So then again, we were living in a sort of military camp. Mm-hmm. And my parents both had this very strong feeling that they wanted to give me the best education possible. And they sent me back. They didn't want me to be in at school in Germany because the education system is, I think, you know, one year, uh, what's it, sort of one year, you start one year later. In gotcha. School. So where well, you'd start in four years. in the UK, you'd start five in Germany, yes. something like that. Yeah. Okay. So they were worried that I would sort of fall back. So they sent me to boarding school from age of seven. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My sister was already at boarding school. So for me, it wasn't a big deal at all. Okay. I mean, many people go, oh, my gosh, how could they do that? They monsters. You know, how could they do <laughs> for me, it was no problem for my parents, especially for my mother. It was really tough. Yeah. But they thought it was the best thing for me. So off I went to boarding school age seven. And yeah. I won't go into that. Not too much to say about that. Very strict, very logical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's where you learn to logic. Actually, can, I throw, can I throw in another story? Sure. An anecdote. On the theme of logic, I remember a time in my last year at school where we had a new headmistress. And she, unlike the old headmistress, was very keen on league tables and comparing us with other schools. And so every whatever it was, you know, assembly or I can't remember the terminology, She'd say, yes, uh, you know, girls, we have got X percent of A grades and blah, 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 and this kind of stuff. And it was just sort of forced down our throats. And I, was, I felt this really strong emotional reaction to this. And so a friend of mine and I led a petition. We, we got people to sign saying, we don't want to be treated like cogs in a machine. We're human beings. <laughs> and then... I can't quite remember who we, we submitted it to someone and the headmistress didn't see us about it, but the deputy headmistress saw us about it and was sort of just a bit diplomatic. We kind of understood, well, there's nothing we can do that's going to happen about it. And that went away. But that, I think, yeah, it ties in very strongly for me with the conversation we started off this uh, with about the logic and lunacy that I love logic, but I don't want to be treated like a, like a computer. That's amazing. That's, I mean, there's such lunacy in that as well, isn't there? But actually, if I, I'm thinking about it, you'd seem to have quite a strong sense of justice, which perhaps also ties in with the mediation. What do you think? I saw a little flicker in your face there. That's interesting. Well, when the first thing that flickered when you said justice was kind of misplaced, what's the word? Outrage. Uh, What's the word when you get really angry? about something, it's mm-hmm. in, righteous indignation. Ooh. So not particularly something I'm proud of at all, but there were times at school when I would get told off for something and I was furious, just because, how dare you? How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> if it was something I didn't agree with, or even yeah. if it was, there was one thing I got told off for and I knew I'd done something terrible. So I thought, you know, why beat me up about it? I'm already beating myself up about it. I held up the entire school for the beginning of a GCSE or some public exam, I was late. And I felt so bad because everyone was, you know, how nervous you are sitting, waiting to start a public exam. And I'd held everyone up. I felt terrible. And then someone sort of started giving me a le- moral lecture about it. I say, you don't need to do this. <laughs> anyway, 
So that was my first thought when you said sense of justice. Ooh. Not really, not really, I would say a kind of a very noble kind of justice. Um, but what, when you, did you, you connected it with mediation? Maybe not. No, actually, no. No. No, no, because for me, mediation is not about justice. No. It's about making sense and making decisions for yourself. Interesting. And so I don't, it's, it's, I mean, there are many different types of mediation and there are some where it's more about, okay, a mediator will influence the parties one way or another and put forward their view of what's right and what's wrong. But the kind of uh, mediation I like best is where the mediator really makes a commitment to not putting in an opinion mm. and listening to both sides and saying, okay, you know, tr just trying to be a mirror, trying to be a mirror so that they can make some sense of the situation they're in and make sense and make better decisions. Like, what do I want? Become clear of their agency, their, their choices and their power. Mm. Choices and power. Interesting. So mm. that righteous indignation then. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah. 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 That's a goodie. That's a goodie. Yeah. Um, I can hear my father saying, how dare you? Mm. So it might come from, you know, part of it might be sort of an inherited yeah. thing. I think... Maybe it ties into the mediation in an unexpected way, which is that I have, a, I have a very strong, if you sort of see the world as either black and white or gray, I'm totally on the gray side. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just revel in all the ambiguities and the doubts and the, you know, I don't know what I, what's certain. I'd be quite ready to believe there's an alien sitting on my shoulder right now. <laughs> <laughs> um just oh, and that this table isn't here and you know many things that I'm that I'm open to and why am I saying that just that subjectivity is that everyone has a different worldview I'll just wait for that very can you hear that very loud no can't Keep going. My, my earphones fine so yeah I have this strong sense that everyone is unique and has a very different worldview and that therefore rules rules are it's fine as a guideline and i can see that the benefits social benefits of rules but you know to follow rules blindly without thinking about the circumstances and the unique people involved and and the this and the that does make me enraged yeah yeah if i ultimately i know that I and I, I suspect many people make decisions not on logical grounds, on maybe reasons we don't even understand why. Um, and so somehow that should translate onto how we administer justice if that's what we're doing or, 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 or judge people. So I'm thinking of the teacher who's judging me saying, naughty, naughty, because you broke this rule. But I, I suppose, yeah, I suppose even at that age, I was hoping that they would sort of say to me, so start by saying, you know, so, so, so what happened? And, and, you know, try and see my point of view. Mm. First of all, oh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Wanting to have my point of view seen rather than just sort of apply a blanket rule and, okay, someone broke a rule, naughty, naughty, let's tell them off. Yeah. <laughs> How does that work out in Japan for you? I mean, or is it, do you, do you see the logic behind a lot of the stuff in Japan? Cause I can actually, I work my way through to think of a lot of the logic, but then sometimes mm. 
the naughty, naughty thing kind of can get to me, but yeah. Mm-mm. No, no shade to Japan whatsoever, but I think for most people, there's quite yeah. a stereotype of it being quite a rule driven yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, on one level, on a personal la- level, occasionally it has affected me. I remember I've got, I don't know if you can see, I've got very sort of frizzy curly hair. Yeah. And I remember once getting onto a train, probably the Yamanote line in Tokyo once, and there was a sign on the wall with a picture of two ladies. One, it was, it was a drawing, wasn't a photo. One had really tidy, smoothly sort of quaffed hair and had a big tick by her. <laughs> and then there I were remember that had curly hair and it was crossed out like that. I remember And this. I thought, what? Whoa! Yeah. I, I, I was shocked. I was shocked. But <laughs> I, I suppose I'm perhaps lucky enough and that. You know, I haven't gone through a Japanese education system. It never affected me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gaijin and no one really has complained too much about, about things like that for me. So, so it hasn't affected me personally. Where it does, uh, where I have thought about it more is as a teacher of, of, of acting and of, of physical acting, when we teach occasionally in the corporate sector and do an exercise, and, and the aim is generally the themes we teach around are communication and creativity and give people an exercise on an improvisation of some sort. You've got to make a little piece and they'll say, okay, what, what are the rules? <laughs> well, this is art and you don't, there are no rules. You make something you like. And for many people that's, well, it's scary for anyone. It's very scary. It's scary for anyone. It was scary for me as well. The first time being, having come from a management consulting background, but I would say probably if you, you know, well, you know, generalizing in Japan, it's probably a little harder than elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and we did, for example, you know, there's a big thing. We did some training in a bank for the, it was the what do you call it? Orientation or the when, new, when grads. New, new grad training. Yeah. Exactly. And so as part of that, they're taught sort of business etiquette and this and that and this and that. So slightly tongue in cheek, one of our exercises was, okay, stand on opposite sides of the room. You come into the center and you shake hands. But, and as you know, you know, the way you bow in Japan, there are kind of rules around that. But we said the one rule is you have to do it in a way you've never done it before. (laughs) And so all of them went through this one after the other. And they weren't allowed to do it in the way that anyone else had done it before. So by the end, they were sort of rolling on the floor and, you know, putting that one arm onto the other or between their legs to shake hands. And and it was really, it was really fun. I love that. Might I might have that at my uh, client's party this year. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Or something similar. I've done it with what something similar with words before. So after you went to boarding school and you also you lived in Northern Ireland, you lived in Germany for a short yeah. amount of time. And for anybody listening who doesn't really understand the context of Northern Ireland when we were young, I think was maybe about five years between you and I. I'm not sure. I'm 46. Okay, yeah, so four years between us. So we're in the same generation. My point mm. being is that there was um, there was a lot of unrest in Northern Ireland when we yeah. were young. There was essentially a war, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, so uh, the between the British and the Irish, and you can look more into that. The country was kind of divided by Northern Ireland and then Ireland, and um, and so. Um, and there was a Catholic and Protestant element to that as well. 
Um, so um, there, there was a strong military presence there, but it was it was very violent, very some places were very dangerous. There were kind of weekly explosions and, and what we call the mainland, which is uh, the mainland of England, was also getting um, uh, bombed quite regularly as well at that time so it was quite an, it was quite a moment in 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 history mm. um so i just wanted to give a little bit of context to that mm. thank so, you yeah for that's that. okay can i can i just sort of pick up on something you said yeah. in there i'm not quite sure how this relates to any question you've asked me but i said anyway um another part i don't even know if it's righteous indignation but something that drives me just really tears me apart is the idea of people doing violence to one another on the basis of a label you know you are christian or uh, in protestant or catholic you are yeah. british or whatever and another little story in fact from, from my latter day i mentioned my mother's father was an american by nationality who he probably we don't even quite know but he probably he may have been born in Europe and then moved to America just after being born with his parents who were from Romania and Germany. Mm. So he got this you know, American passport. And then he ended up in the Philippines during Second World War. Mm. And he had really good relationships with a lot of Japanese people in the Philippines mm. uh, for, through trade, through business that he was doing. He had a plantation, a uh, coconut plantation, and he had lots of Japanese people as business partners or people working there. And when the war broke out and Japan, Japanese became the enemy for the Filipinos and vice versa, he, according to his diary, he sent out a message to all the Japanese people in the area saying, if anyone's not feeling secure, come and stay in my plantation and I will protect you. So a bunch of people did. And that went on for a while. And then war continued and things progressed as they do. And there came a point where the balance of power was so much in the favor of the Japanese that um, well, he could no longer protect uh, the people on his uh, plantation. And eventually something happened where there was a Japanese ship that was in, this was in the south of the Philippines, in Davao. And the, the ship, they wanted to get up to Manila. Mm. But obviously there were, you know, there were there was a threat from the air of being bombed by American uh, forces. So the Japanese uh, army at the time they gathered up as many American people as they could, and they took them and they put them on top of the ship and made them wave white flags so that the boat wouldn't be bombed. Hmm. So when the boat got to Manila, they put them all in prison. And he survived, but only just very malnourished. And the war ended. He just got home, but died shortly afterwards. Mm. So the sort of the point of this story, other than that, you know, just extraordinary sort of. It's extraordinary. Originally, his parents were Jews in Europe who left Europe because they were Jews and they were feeling unsafe. So they go to America and he, the son is born and he gets an American passport. And now he is persecuted for being an American. Mm. I mean, if you knew, how stupid are we? <laughs> how stupid are oh, we? Oh, utterly. It's absolutely, it's, absolutely yeah. bonkers. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and it doesn't end there, does it? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean. Yeah. So the label of woman at the moment, which is under attack, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's, let's move on then. And 
I'm really fascinated to hear more about this. Now, tell me that one of the um, one of the that is a really fascinating story. I think that's just I love it when we get like a little historical snapshot of something mm-hmm. as well. Like I have not ever I just learned so much about so much in just that five minutes. Yeah. My friend Alex opened with a story about living in Serbia when Belgrade was being bombed. You know, it's just like, oh, my God, you yeah, had forgotten about that. So it, it, I really appreciate you having shared that with us was one of your um pieces related to that somehow good memory yes yeah the reason my grandfather was in the philippines i want to think no he went there anyway at first he was working as a he was a chemist by trade in fact originally making sort of shampoos and things like that (laughs) but he had a love of the arts and he started making movies and his wife at the time not my grandmother, his wife at the time was uh, a Filipina actress. And so together they made movies. And they made movies actually about the Philippine national hero, Jose Vizal. Okay. And so this is we're talking about 19, right at the beginning of the 20th century. Okay. He made movies in the Philippines. And tragically, these movies were lost in the war because at the oh. time when he was captured and taken away, the the Japanese soldiers took over his home and used it as a base and everything in there was lost. But I was thinking about those one day and I was like, oh, what would I give to watch those movies? Well, I'll imagine them, we'll make them. So we made, I made a show, which was a stage production. I had two, mainly two actors on stage. One Canadian actor was acting my grandfather and one Japanese actress who was acting as my grandmother. So not the lady who was, it was a, as a, a, a later wife because the first wife died of uh, illness, sudden illness, very young. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I won't go into the whole story there, but anyway, so those are the two main characters on stage. And it's a time, it's set in a time of my life where my grandfather is nostalgic and reflecting on the past and he gets out these old reels from his old movies and he watches them. And so we had to make those scenes to project on stage. And in those, it was me and my husband, Ken, acting as the sort of main characters, one of which was uh, his earlier wife, uh, whose role I was playing. So that's probably the show you're referring to, yeah. I am, yeah. It was just really fascinating. And I I, I love this backstory as well. Um, How clever you are to, uh, I mean, this says a lot to memory and how we experience the world as well is like we can dream things up left right and center you dreamed up being seaweed you dreamed up this um oh so I don't know anything about these movies so I'm just going to dream them up and actually make something that talks about it and there's a deep humility in you playing your grandfather's previous wife as well there's something really (laughs) wild about that like it's just so Terrific. And I suppose there's that 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 marriage between lunacy and logic, because to put on a performance like that, there is such rigor. Um, I think there's yeah, there is. And I just in fact, another way to see that logic and lunacy felt theme in that show was that I wanted to I was just thinking about this relationship between my grandfather and his and, and my grandmother. And my grandfather came from a very educated background. He had lots of books. He loved poetry. And with his first wife, they used to have these poetry readings. And then they made films together about classic, you know, books based on history. But when she died, 
he he was absolutely devastated and he was on his own for a long time. He ended up marrying the person who was helping clean his house. And that's my grandmother. And she didn't have that kind of background at all. I only met her once. so I don't really know that much about her. But whilst he was this sort of man of very sort of Western style uh, literature and books, she was, as, as, I, as I sense her, very sort of intuitive, um, much more on the sort of yeah, emotional and intuitive side. And he was more the logic and the words. And so I, I sort of, you know, as it's your right as, a, as, as an artist, it's just, it sort of stereotyped them, <laughs> simplified them to sort of emphasize this sort of the, well, and many, many differences, the Western male words based sort of logical archetype, let's say, not stereotype mm-hmm. archetype, mm-hmm. and the Eastern female emotional intuitive uh, archetype. Mm. And what an amazing, powerful partnership that is. I feel, you know, I feel both sides of those really kind of coursing through my veins. And in fact, in, in making the show, I, felt I became closer to my already dead grandmother through making it, through thinking about it more from her perspective. And yeah, how he must have, what I hear is of my mother is that after his uh, first wife died he just kind of closed in on himself and just kind of hardened up and she somehow you know opened him up with her softness and intuition I, I, I in my imagination <laughs> mm. yeah. softness and intuition gorgeous mm-hmm. so from this soft intuition I'd like to jump back into asking you about your studies at university and how yeah. you got into management consulting <laughs> it's kind of like uh uh and how you got into that so you finished boarding school and you didn't have such a bad you had a, a reasonable experience there yes I did I learned how to play the game yeah. and I survived yeah <laughs> <laughs> I survived I, yeah yeah I kind of observed what it took to to sort of survive I was I think a bit of a chameleon and thought okay so that's the kind of person that is you know is I I kind of blended in I think (laughs) and it wasn't a given it was quite difficult for me because I was very nerdy and very square Mm -hmm. um, and rather sort of softly spoken and and sort of you know uh yeah, and, and I surrounded by all these people who seemed so sort of strong and brash and sure of themselves and cool and sassy and all the rest of it. So I was pretty intimidated for uh, quite a while. But somehow I, I just mucked it, mucked along. I found a way to muck along and survived. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and then um, you went to Oxford or Cambridge? I went to Oxford. Yes. And what did you read? I, I studied a course called Philosophy, Politics and Economics. Oh, wow. And I didn't know what I wanted to do to study. But just before I had to sort of make a decision, I suddenly developed an interest in philosophy. And I think I picked up a book. Uh, it was actually Crime and Punishment oh. by Rask, uh, by, Rask, by Dostoevsky. Mm. And also, I think I picked up a book of Plato, something 
the Republic or something like that. And I suddenly thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, these big ideas, kind of wow. And so I discovered that they both had some connection with philosophy. I thought, I want to do philosophy. But I found you couldn't just do philosophy at Oxford. You had to do it in combination with something else. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's changed now. I don't know. But anyway, that was the case. And so I did this course. It kind of comes as a package, philosophy, politics, and economics. I did that. And you're allowed to give up one of the three, the PP and E, after one year. So I gave up the politics. So in fact, I studied PE. <laughs> <laughs> That's an in-joke if you're not British. PE is physical education for mostly when you hear that. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, yeah, I did mostly philosophy and a little bit of economics. And within the philosophy, what I loved best was formal logic and aesthetics. Those are my two favorite papers. What's aesthetics? Aesthetics is the study of beauty. Okay. I mean, that's what I thought, <laughs> but I don't know yeah. in the philosoph- in, against the philosophical backdrop. Yeah. Yeah, it's a study of beauty. What is beauty? You know, how do you define it? And, and you know, what is its significance? And is it in the eye of the beholder? <laughs> All that kind of thing. Huh. Yeah. And I love that. So I did that. And when I left university, again, I didn't know really what to do. I didn't have a strong sense from a young age. Well, apart from something else, but that's another story. From in my sort of early teen, early teens onwards I didn't have a strong sense of what I wanted to be I sort of assumed I'd be wearing a suit mm-hmm. you had a general sense <laughs> I had a general kind of image based on looking around me and and sort yeah. of the absorbed vibes from my parents and the one thing I was interested in there was European integration because that seemed like a big historical development of our times mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we can laugh about it now but yeah yeah so, but it's a nervous I, laugh. Know, <laughs> I know nervous laugh exactly so I um I, I did an internship at the European Commission so I kind of delayed starting a job so that I could go and do that in whatever the timing was that was just a couple of months and during that time I met a bunch of other people and spoke to them about what jobs they were doing and thought you know what sounds interesting and in the end came back to what was quite a cliche at the time for for me management consulting because that was something that was sort of being pushed at me but I did it because I thought it would be varied work and since I didn't know what I wanted to do I thought at least at least do a lot of different things (laughs) and it was it was really interesting I got to look at many different industries from sort of IT industry to vending machine maker companies I mean so many different uh, businesses because we were doing a lot of commercial due diligence for private equity companies so Mm -hmm. private equity companies would go and buy a company try and do something to it and then sell it for a lot more money and so they would ask people like our company to sort of review the target companies that they were thinking of of buying and so that was fun I you know learned about lots of different industries but I got a sense fairly quickly on this isn't really what I was put on this earth to do. And I first first thing that happened was I realized within business, I'm most interested in the people side of mm. business. And so I was lucky that in my company, there was a chance I, I sort of stepped away from the uh, private equity and due diligence world and went more towards the sort of corporate clients where the issues were more about, okay, how do we structure our organization or you know, what about culture change? You know, how can we bring about culture change in our organization? And that was really interesting. And then at about that time, 
I met someone a little by the by at a five rhythms class. Have you had a five oh, rhythms? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've done five yeah. rhythms. Yeah, yeah, five rhythms. Yeah, that's seaweed. Like, what are those? Yeah, seaweed, yeah, isn't it? yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I found I got somehow sucked up into into the five rhythms world and just went once a week to do five rhythms dancing and I loved it. This was before yeah. anything. Zoe did that as well on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah, of course. Go on. And I was just chatting to someone there and they introduced themselves as they said, um, what's your job? I said, and he said, conflict management. Well, that sounds cool. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. I just thought it sounded cool. So I looked into it and it turned out that I could go and do some training at this place called the Center for, oh my gosh, C-E-D-R, Center for something other decision-making. Oh my gosh, I can't remember at all what it stands for. Anyway, it's a sort of place where you get trained in how to mediate. Mm -hmm. And so that became, that's where the mediation sort of part of the puzzle fits in. And then shortly after that, I picked up a flyer for a workshop in something called Corporeal Mime. <laughs> it was actually, it was at the back of a program for the London International Mime Festival, mm -hmm. which is a, still going today, very vibrant and, and popular festival of sort of physical theater and mime and all sorts of things. And I just saw this advertisement for a workshop and something in me said, oh, I think I'll do that. Why? <laughs> it's just the seaweed getting taken on a current. Yeah. Yeah. So I did it. Little did I know. Yes. <laughs> I did it. And it was just a two day workshop. And it was like someone just kind of drew back the curtain on an out a world outside my window that I yeah. had no awareness of, no idea that it existed. Just on, in a little way, but there was something kind of kind of vibrating inside. Yes, me. and I kept in touch with this um, the school that was that gave the workshop, and they said, "Oh, we do a summer school as well, two weeks." I knew they had a full time school, but obviously I couldn't do that because I was a management consultant. So I waited until the summer when the summer workshop happened, and so I spent my summer that year in a darkened studio in North London mm -hmm. instead of what I normally would have done at the time would be jump on a plane and go to Nepal or, or Venezuela and sit on a beach or something like that. So I didn't do that. I went to North London <laughs> and did this two-week summer school. And that's when it happens. It just, my world cracked open really evidently and unavoidably. I couldn't deny it. I just, I think on the end of the last day, I was cycling home and I had tears just pouring from my eyes it was the most dangerous cycle ride of my life <laughs> somehow I made it home yeah and I think I cried non-stop I can't remember how many hours but cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and I was someone who never cried very much and took pride in that I remember when I was very little in a boarding school age of seven and there'd be other people around me crying and I would always think I'm not gonna cry and but it was it was more than I could uh take it just it was beyond. Me up. It was really beyond. In fact, interesting, I think I will throw in this. The last time I'd cried like that was when I was 10 years old. When, here's another part of the puzzle, up until the age of 10, ever since from, I don't know, well, let's say age five, I was obsessed with ballet. I was absolutely certain that that was the reason I was on this planet. 
And I, despite having had no proper training and like just taking class once a week, which was not nearly enough, I somehow ended up taking the exam to the Junior Royal Ballet School and I failed. <laughs> that, was, that was the end of my life, I thought. I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And then I sort of pulled myself together and I put on my brave face. I survived. Oh, that's come back again, hasn't it? I survived. So from then on, any idea of anything fancy and wild like ballet or arts was it just felt very risky. It was, yeah, I think I, everyone had been telling me, everyone, I say, my headmistress had been saying, no, 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 you don't want to be a ballerina. The irony was she had been a ballerina, amazingly, but she had an injury and she had to stop early. So she felt that she kind of wasted her career and she was trying to protect me and say, you know, don't go through that. It's too risky. And, you know, do your exams and get a blah, blah, blah. So I, I just sort of took it to mean, okay, maybe they're all right. Maybe I shouldn't be, you know, a, a ballerina. Maybe I'm supposed to take my exams. I got good grades and everything was easy. And okay, maybe that's my destiny. Yeah. And so that's how, what I assumed until 15 years later, age 25, I think, or 26, when I did this workshop. I think that's what cracked me open. I suddenly realized, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. This isn't me. <laughs> and that was reawakened by that workshop. So it was the same kind of switch that switched that flood of tears on or yeah. something, but yeah. it was just that In the opposite direction. visceral sense of yeah. this. Is, uh, yeah. Funny, isn't it, when people, yeah. I mean, this is why I, I love that there are many ways to lead a life phrase is because I feel so strongly about when people say oh you shouldn't do that when somebody's clearly passionate about it but it's not about you it's about them it's just oh my god I mean careers advice in our age our day was just wild wasn't it It bonkers it was about three options what were yours tell me oh I mean I don't even think I saw anybody but I was given the choice of either lawyer or doctor oh really we had probation officer I remember that and it was so funny because um we, we figured at the time it was because somewhere out there was saying there's a shortage of, you know, people doing probation officer jobs. So let's tell the younger generation to do, to do that. Oh, we, we couldn't take it seriously. It was just everyone was being <laughs> probation officer. Probation officer. officer. boarding school. It's like prison. And then, um, but for me also, it was like the sciences. Girls yeah. must do the sciences. They oh. should be engineers or go into the yeah. sciences. I mean, yeah. you know, Margaret Thatcher was a uh, was a scientist prior to becoming a politician. So yeah. I, mean, I think maybe that was part of it. And they were really that trying generation. to encourage yeah. and going and into now, STEM. Yeah. But, yeah. oh, God, it was the worst. It took me a long yeah. time to recover from that. I felt a little bit like that with coaching, actually. When I first kind of got introduced yeah. to coaching, I was a bit like by um, another mutual friend of ours, Adrienne. I was a bit oh. like what is this sorcery? <laughs> and then when I started getting coached, I would be like on yeah. the, on the floor, just crying, like, yeah. Oh, it was such a relief, but also like, ah, oh. yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's the relief just to say, yeah, that's who I that's am. Or who I want to be, or at least that, that part of me exists. And I, you know, when you, I feel I've been suppressing it. Yeah. I know. And it's, and, and I think when you've got a calling that strong, I don't know that everybody has that really strong 
um, sense of something maybe they do. I just I know a lot of just kind of very solid, straightforward, quite nice, conservative people who don't really see. They seem to be just quite happy with their day to day lives. But then I know a lot of people like us as well who have this passion and this fire and who talk about being like seaweed and, <laughs> you know, and who have this. <laughs> Have some, yeah. and lunacy yeah. and logic and they have this kind yeah. of there's something else there there's something else going on beneath the surface and and um it is it's it's almost um it's like a living death not doing it and then you real until you realize whoa yeah. hang on and then hopefully yeah. you know if like you and I we had the means to be able to take a a UE a U-turn yeah. or yes. you know um yeah. go in the uh, mm-hmm. in in a different direction so take us, where, what happens next? So you come back, you cry your eyes out yes. and then you, you've got this mediation in play. You're still a management consultant. You've mm-hmm. got this thing going on. Your husband is somewhere lingering in the future. So let, yes. let's take, take it, take us through to where we okay. are. Okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> so, there I am. I've just got off my bike. I'm alive. <laughs> I didn't crash. And I go upstairs and I'm crying, 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 crying. Anyway, I go back to work. That was a sort of Friday night. I go back to work on the Monday morning. I can't remember what happened that weekend at all. It's probably just a blur of tears. Monday morning, I go back to the office and I try to work, but I cannot. There's absolutely no way. So I take myself off into one of the little meeting rooms that isn't being used. And I sit there and I just take stock. What the hell's going on here? And I had a kind of epiphany. (laughs) I... So I had this image. I saw myself as a goat with a rope around its neck and the rope is attached to a stake in the ground and the rope and the goat, the goat, <laughs> get this right. The goat is walking in a circle around the stake and suddenly the goat realizes there's no stake or possibly there's no rope. <laughs> One of the two. The point is the goat suddenly realizes, realizes I've been staying in this little circumference all my life because of some false assumption that I had to stay here. But in fact, I can go anywhere. I can, I can go there, I can go there, I can go there, I can go there. And I suddenly entertained the possibility that I might become someone that I had never dreamt that I could be. And so then it all went from there. I thought, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to join that full-time school. But I was very sensible. So I, at first I assumed I'd just go for three months. In fact, I assumed it would only be three months. I'd just mm-hmm. get it out of my system. And so I put forward an argument to my boss that I should be allowed to go part-time for three months. And he was wonderful and very progressive and said, okay, Tanya, yes, you do that. And after three months, I absolutely knew there was no way I could give up the mine. Absolutely no way. It would be like kind of chopping off my arm. So I went back to my very kind boss and said, can I extend for another year? And he sort of rolled his eyes and said, okay, Tanya. And that, in fact, ended up continuing for two and a half years this double life of being a management consultant and a mime student. And at the end of that, I finally admitted to myself, Tanya, this is quite serious. It's not just a whim. Let's quit the job. (laughs) So I quit the job and I finished. It was a three-year program, training program in mime. So I finished the three years. I got a diploma and then I stayed on to train in teaching and directing. And then I was invited to join the company that is made up of people from this school and run by the same people that run the school, Stephen Wasson and Corinne Soon, an amazingly inspiring couple that have really formed 
so much of who I am. And the thing that I'm, I'm most grateful about to them is their passion. That, you know, having it basically it brought me back to life, their passion. Oh. So, so strong that I suddenly thought, oh, it's possible to live like that. And I, I'd just never met anyone like that that had that passion in my life. And so that, that's why I was sort of making do because that's what it felt that was the right thing to do, what everyone did. And then I just encountered this fire <laughs> and it burnt me and it woke me up. Their passion brought me back to life. Wow, yeah. what a what a legacy. But I also want to yeah. give a massive shout out to the hidden hero of this, which is your manager in the yes. consultancy. Yes. Because bravo them yeah. for... Because what I think is like, that is such a radical thing to allow yeah. some, because it wasn't, it was long, long before COVID, right? It's long yeah. before like flexible working hours, yeah. probably even before yeah. Skype. Yeah. So the, the idea that that person would say, yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, go yeah. ahead. It's just yeah. Yeah. They, they incredible. Were, they were wonderful that um, him and the company and the culture that he created in that, in that company, which is why I joined them. I remember. Another throw in another little anecdote. Jeez. I'm praising the uns, unsung, the heroes of that in that way. When I was interviewed for the job, every other company when they interviewed me, they would sit on the opposite side of the table and interview me, like very kind of. And he sat next to me on the table, and I think everyone in the company that interviewed me sat next to me as if you know we're here side by side. That really strongly impressed me. I really felt the kind of where that came from, and anyway, that continued as you pointed out all the way till yeah the end of my time there I just think That's it takes cor- terrific courage inside a corporation to behave yeah. outside the norm and uh, yeah. and that really really moves me along yeah. with you saying their passion brought you back to life yeah wow bravo that manager is what I've just written yeah. on my piece of paper here <laughs> so, <laughs> so so take us yeah. through then to so meeting your business partner, dancing partner slash yeah. husband <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right. and how that got, and then what, how you started your, your, your company, how you found your way to Japan. And another little tidbit I'd like to throw in here yeah. is my brother's husband is also Japanese, also mm. knows a couple who, you know, who are an English woman and a Japanese man. Shun and oh. Becky. Yes. And I met them at the wedding and then suddenly realized that they knew you two as well. And it's just like, what a small world. Yes. And I suppose it is the Japanese community in London is a small world, a genuinely small world. But wow. Yeah. (laughs) And the uh, English wives of Japanese husbands, probably quite a small world. too. (laughs) Yes. 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 Definitely. It's normally the other way around. Or English husbands of Japanese men as well. Yes. (laughs) English husbands of Japanese husbands. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) So that's another little tidbit to throw in there. Anyway, so tell us, so bring us up to when you came to Tokyo and got involved with the RSA and then ended up moving to Osaka, etc. Let's let's bring it up. All right. So there I am. I've done now about, well, actually I need to read backtrack a tiny bit because during that time where while I was a student already I fell in love with a Japanese man who was in the company already so he'd done his training he was already teaching in fact as a teaching assistant and so we stayed together for the rest of my time there and the rest of his time there and it was with him that I first came to Japan and had that seaweed encounter and at that time already we were thinking he was thinking about coming back to Japan and sort of saying you know what do you think do you you think you could live here 
Um, and so we, I decided yes, we decided yes, and we moved here in 2010, end of 2010. And wow. we came here. He had left Japan age 18. He was then 36, so he felt like an outsider. Um, he came, we moved to Tokyo and he wasn't from Tokyo. So it was his first time uh, as an adult living in Japan and first time living in Tokyo. So it was a huge change for him and for me. And we set up our company, Tarina Nanika. <laughs> and we started teaching and we started renting a studio in Sasazuka and teaching a couple of times a week. But we knew very early on we needed to get our own studio because we wanted to be doing this full-time, not just a few times a week, but it was so expensive to rent by the hour and the risk was so high because if you don't have any students, then you lose your money. And yeah. So we started searching for our own place that we could have 24-7. And for many years, we searched in yeah. Tokyo. I probably bored you with stories of it. Back not bored, in... always no, fascinated. Not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, that was a dream for, for, a very, for, for a very long time. And eventually we realized we couldn't afford anything in Tokyo. Yeah. Because, you know, we need, it's theater, we need space, we need high ceilings and, you know, you throw chairs around and things. Mm. And so we started to look outside Tokyo and we thought, well, it has to be a big city. So there are lots of people to come and see things or to come and study with us or, you know, get part-time work to support themselves. So Osaka was a... That's the logic. Logic, logic. There yeah. you go. I mean, but the lunacy was that we hadn't, we didn't know Osaka. Ken, it's, it's miles away from where Ken is from. He's from Gunma Ken in the other part yeah, of yeah, Japan. Yeah. And, but we just found a property that we liked. And so here we are. <laughs> That's it, really. It's, a, it's called the Flying Carpet Factory, as you said at the beginning. It's an old warehouse that was originally a tatami warehouse and oh. then became, uh, they started dealing in carpets. So when we first came to look at it, the warehouse part downstairs was just covered in carpets. It looked like a sort of uh, a bed, a, a, a souk or some kind of Aladdin's cave. <laughs> and so that's where the name came from, the Flying Carpet Factory. It looked magic. So we built the studio for about over about the first year. I say we, I kind of tried to follow Ken's instructions and bang a few <laughs> nails. <in. laughs> He's brilliant at that. And it, but it was a big deal because, you know, he had never actually built a studio pretty much from scratch before, not built, but renovated a studio from scratch. So it was pretty high tension time, uh, knowing that the consequences are huge if you make a mistake. But we ended up with a studio with all the lights and the proper dance sprung floor. And it's, it's great. It's wonderful. And then in 2020, I think it must have been, we opened our school. That had been the big aim to have full-time school. And almost at exactly the same time, the pandemic began. Yes. <laughs> so it's been a very slow start, but it it is my dream or the dream mm. that I had for a long time. And it really is something that I keep pinching myself about to have. It's so it's the dream of so many artists, especially well, anyone who needs whose work involves the studio. We, we live up here. We have our studio downstairs. We can use it any time of day or night. It's amazing. So it's you're amazing. living the dream, basically. Yes, yes, yes. So what does Tari Nai Nanika mean? It means the missing something. So Tari Nai is lacking or missing and Nanika is something. If it was a proper verb, the structure would be different. If Yes. But it's a sort of a 
made up word that's the missing something we would mm. say in English. And it was actually a line from the first show that we made or the title of the first show we made. And it was so nice that we kept it as a, as a company name. And it works for us because it, I think you, you yourself, you mentioned that every show we make looks like a fugue. Well, a fugue is about searching. It actually comes from originally the word fugue. It is like fleet flight or escape, uh, searching for something, fleeing or, or searching. And so all our shows are about some kind of search. Yeah. So it fits very well as our company name. So we've been making shows, teaching since we started the company. We started to go on international tours. We managed two. And then again, the pandemic happened. So we haven't been on international tour, but maybe next year we'll see. We're just making a new show now. Well, you were at the Edinburgh Festival. Is that right? We were digitally. Oh, so, okay. Digitally, yes. Last year and this year again, we'll submit some work digitally so that people can watch it online because they realize that in this environment, there's so much uncertainty about hosting live shows. So they uh, went digital. And so we benefited from that. And that's been amazing. But still, live touring would be good. So, yes. Yeah. Oh, it's only around the corner. I said, I kind of predicted in my head, it's going to be three years this. Now, I've just been back to the UK and things are kind of back to normal there people aren't wearing masks and things like that so and and this this most recent strain doesn't seem to be quite as devastating as the first Mm. and second rounds were so so there's that but I reckon uh early next year February March next year I think we'll be Okay, I'll book my tour for them then. That's my only, <laughs> that, no, just I just looked back on old uh, previous pandemics and yeah. went, right, okay, it's going to be three years and, and, and then that helps me to yeah. just calm down a little bit. So I have two questions for you. Okay. Number one is, what is corporeal mime? <laughs> and the second one, what's it like running a business with your husband and also being, you know, kind of leaders in your field? Hmm. Oh, those are two big questions. <laughs> How much time but have we got? If you can give us the cliff notes, uh, we've got 10 minutes. Give us the Brody's okay. notes. <laughs> okay. Corporeal mime. Before I even try to define it, it's just worth thinking about how, I mean, how do you define poetry? How do you find music? Mm. How do you find it? It's very difficult to define, especially something, you know, which is based on, on the body. Mm. But fundamentally, it's, it's a form of acting. Mm-hmm. It's a theatrical art form, which is based on the expressive power of the body. Corporeal being body. Corporeal being yes. body. Exactly. So whilst in much of traditional kind of mainstream Western theatre, the, the starting point is the written word, the play. For us, the starting point is the body and action, gesture and physical expression of, of all sorts. And there's an extraordinary technique and very developed and beautiful technique that helps you to find the full expressive power of your body I wish we had more than 10 minutes Sarah yeah you've done well, about, isn't there about it. four different movements I seem to remember it was there was like certain different movements that you do to to no I can't say there are four different movements there's an infinite number of movements okay um there are a couple of different main sections of the technique yes so one is to do with the rhythm of mm-hmm. your action so the dynamo rhythm of your action. So for example, if I'm going to reach forward towards you, that's an action. Yeah. And if I do it fast like that, or if I do it very slow, yeah, you get a very different feeling. Yes. Yeah. From me. So that's one area of the study is that anything you do, whether it's standing up or waving, anything you do right. has, a, has a rhythm 
and becoming more aware of that and making more choices and being more dramatic in your choices, creative in your choices. Another part is the articulation of the body. So for example, if I want to, if I'm here and I want to look at you, I can do a pure rotation to look at you. That's a pure geometric rotation. Mm-hmm. I can do that, which is a double design because I've got both a rotation and a lateral. In yeah, there. this is what I'm thinking of. These yeah. are the things I'm thinking of. It was like, there's this, then there's yeah. this, then there's, there was all these different That's things right. you do. And we had to kind That's of right. make little sequences with a partner yeah. using these different things and mimic each other. It was yeah. so fun. Yeah. And, um, yes. So there's the... I'm just did it with my head, but you can do it with this part of the body, with any part of the body, not yeah. any part of the body. You can't do it with your hands, but <laughs> uh-huh. many of them, uh, you, and so you train like you do with a musical instrument. We do scales with our body, for example. You know, if it's a lateral, I do that with this part. I can do it with this part, etc. And then another big area is called counterweights. And that's basically to do with creating the illusion of weight and effort. And I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'll take an hour. To say, <laughs> to try and, is that to try when you're with somebody else or is that when you're on your own it can be both it can be both it's basically the idea of using weight and effort to express either physical weight and effort or non-physical so if you do something like this ah yeah that can look as like okay i'm lifting something heavy or it can be some kind of emotional expression and it's totally different from if you go like that yeah you can't look really light so it's the study and, and to do it on a big scale, you can't do it just with your arms. You have to involve the weight of your body. It's still gravity and yeah. um, physics. Yeah. But yes, that's a really interesting area which connects the physical world with the emotional world through similar kind of roots of action, which is wow. called counterweights. It's, it's amazing. So the physical world with the emotional world through weights and action. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, that's a really one. nice, concise way to put it. Yeah. 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 So my next curiosity question, and maybe the final one is, yeah. what's it like working with your husband and being <laughs> leading well, performers in your, in your area? So I've only, I only know what it's like to have worked with one husband, so I can't really com- compare with like working with anyone else even, but it's amazing. We're totally different in every respect. I started talking to you about my grandfather and grandmother. I feel the same with us. We're just on paper opposites. And then there's the fact that when I first met him, he was already like legendary in my in our world world of corporeal mind. And I was a management consultant, nerdy management consultant, <laughs> putting my first foot on stage. <laughs> so from all those respects, it's it's been a huge adventure developing the way you work together. Mm-hmm. And what I I have this really uh, strong ambition to become a sort of a, a role model for what shared leadership might look like. Oh, yeah. And I realized really quite recently, just a few years ago, that when I think of leaders, I always think of one person. You know, there's a leader and then that person has, you know, a secretary or people behind, <laughs> the, behind the scenes doing this, that and the other, or, you know, or, or often a wife, <laughs> you know, yeah, doing things behind the screen. And I thought... Why does it have to be that? Why? Because my, mm. you know, as I mentioned, my teacher, Stephen Bosson, Corinne Soom, they were a leader together. And they brought these different qualities, being different people. She happened to be from France and he from the United States. So they had those, and just being different human beings, they had different characteristics. And it was such a sort of a complementary whole. And I thought, 
that is something that I want to offer to the world, to offer, you know, to the younger generation, another, a role model of that, because that, that, that means a lot to me. You know, and when I stopped to think about it at a certain point, I can't remember when it was in my life, about all the people I consider leaders, they were all men. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just realized it was about the same time, I suppose, that I realized how much precedence I'd given to logic and mind and words as opposed to body and intuition and imagination and, and that kind of element of, of course, they're, they're all massively intermingled, but I yes, felt, they are. Yes. <laughs> I felt that there was this kind of split inside me and I'd sort of disregarded anything to do with the, you know, the physical, unless it was to do with, okay, I need to wear clothes that look nice. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't about how does my presence, how does my humanity depend on my physicality how does the way I connect with people relate to people depend on my physicality wait 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 let's say that again for the cheap seats how does (laughs) my how say it again how does my how does my humanity depend on my physicality oh my god okay what makes me human is hugely of course it's dependent on many things but hugely dependent on my physicality the way I experience myself the way, therefore, I express myself, the way, therefore, people relate to me, and a whole sort of world, yeah, I associate a whole world of discovery with that idea that, which is related to, I can be who I want, because physically we can change ourselves, I think, so much more easily than psychologically. Okay, you know, generalization, but... (laughs) No, I think that's a fair thing to say. You can change the way you walk. You can say, I'm going to walk slowly today or I'm going to walk fast today. I'm going to, you know, uh, stick my head in the air today as I walk around. I'm going to be this kind of person or I'm going to be this kind of person. (laughs) And you can do that and it will change the way I feel. It will change the way people see me and relate to me. And it's much easier for me to do that than to say, I'm going to be a more confident person today. Just tell myself, you know, psychologically, I'm going to be more this or more that. I find that very hard. That's so interesting because I've been met for many years after, after observing people for many years and after doing many, many trainings and coaching many, many people saying, oh, I don't feel confident. I don't feel, and I was like, what is it? It was actually um, one of the co-facilitators, Tiffany. I observed her and I was like, what's the difference? What makes her very confident, even though I know a lot about her in the background? And it was simply that she just does things. She just gets on. She just does things. And you've almost kind of said the same thing there. It's like action. It's it, exactly. She just does it. So I say, do you know what confidence is to people? It's doing things. It's just doing things. Don't wait to be confident to put that poem up. Mm. Just mm. do it. Mm. You could be waiting for years to do it. Yeah. And, and then there's the lot. Obviously, then there's the long term proposition, which yeah. is all the other stuff yeah. which comes with it, which is like becoming and recognizing and noticing and and building your confidence very very deliberately but to start with jfdi just flip and do it <laughs> do it like it hang on, hang on. jfdi J-F-D-I. thank you <laughs> yeah i have i run a little mastermind and we often use that because sometimes we, we coach each other i don't know yeah. if you remember on our flourish program we did something called critical incidents i think or yes. on, on yes. pass on feedback yes. or something like that yes. so we just did we did an on-pass on feedback slash critical incidents a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, somebody just said to this artist, there's an element of just JFDI in this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we can give you all of this advice, but there is an element of just JFDI. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah. And another oh. way I'd another way I'd put it, which might sound a little bit off-putting to some people, but it's it's obviously it depends how it, words, 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 you know, depends how you interpret it, which is pretend. It's actually kind of fake it till you make it. It's a, it's a variation of that. And that sounds negative, and I, I'm really not saying it in a negative way. It's no, I know what you mean. Positive, like when I watch it, literally, I can change the way I walk, and then something has changed about the way I am. Yeah. Um, and that physicality has an impact on the on the people behind, around you and your own humanity as well. Yeah. Same as like, you know, now I'm just a woman. Now I'm a woman with fabulous glasses. <laughs> <laughs> that's easy, right? That's that's easy. <laughs> No, 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 now I'm one thing. Yeah. Now I'm another. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Right? And, and that's easy. Obviously, different things. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And now Amen. I should. Thank you. And now I should do it like. <laughs> You're doing it in the rhythm called. Yeah. In pop. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Okay. So now I've just shown my terribly inept bit of um, corporeal mime there. I um, want to ask you my closing question. Um, yeah. But. Before I do that, I want to know what's going on in the future for us and for you and how can we find you? And um, I know you've got some great stuff online as well. So how do we find you and uh, what's happening for you? Okay. So we have a website, www.tadinainanika.com. We'll link to that. Because no one's going to, unless you're Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of practical upcoming things, in three weeks' time, three weeks today, we have a show opening here downstairs. So if you're anywhere near Osaka, please come and see our show about Ray Kamoi, an amazing Japanese artist. Um, so it's inspired by him. It's not just sort of his story, but it's inspired by, by this artist. So that's a happening. Um, so can I have and... the dates for that? Because I, I, part of me is going, am I free? <laughs> 23rd and 24th of July. Okay. Saturday and Sunday. Okay. Yeah. Then we have various in-person events over the summer. We've got a summer workshop on the 6th and 7th of August for anyone who wants to experience this art of the thinking body, which is a little nickname I didn't use earlier, but that's one of the ways to think of corporeal mime. Mm -hmm. We're doing quite a few things online as well. So I run regular online classes through our Patreon page. Mm -hmm. I'll give a link to that. Yes. And as Sarah mentioned, we're participating in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year again. And so two of our shows will be viewable through that. Plus, we haven't actually fixed the dates, but we will have a free online viewing of each of them with a Q&A sometime in August. And I'll give a free online workshop through the Fringe as well. So those are all great ways to have a little taste of what we do for free. What else can I say? But best of all, come and study with us here. Yeah. Just come and and just just walk through the door. Just do it. And JFDI. Have your world, JFDI and have your world yeah. cracked open. So yeah. Tanya, there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? Seaweed. Ah! <laughs> it's seaweed. That's it. <laughs> so I've had to lead a life. It means find my base, my anchor. Mm-hmm. And then surrender to what comes. And then there's that combination of incredible strength and commitment with fluidity and abandon. And that's my idea of how to live a life. 
Oh, I love it. Just so good. So Tanya, thank you so much for today. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. It's been so many, like just so many stories come out of these conversations. I can't believe I just learned so much about Philippine history and some, and, and just uh, an American history and your experience. I didn't know about boarding school and things like that. It's just really interesting to hear your experience and all these wonderful guides who showed up along the way, like, you know, the passion that uh, brought you to life from your two men but not only that but that kind of that quiet background thing of that manager who said yeah go ahead go and do what you need to do what a what a mensch what a great guy and, and I'm going to write to him by the way and tell him pardon? what you said I'm going to write to him and tell him what get you him just to said. watch the get him to watch the yeah. podcast we could dedicate it to him yeah. <laughs> and um but I think that just takes an enormous amount of courage I really do because you have to stand out in the corporate world is something quite quite something I feel mm. and then you know meeting the love of your life and creating this this partnered leadership that you want to become the embodiment of which I just absolutely love this idea and perhaps that's where I went wrong when me and my husband had our first attempt at starting something together was that it, it didn't end up like that and so <laughs> I'm taking that to I'm taking that very much to heart as a, as a piece is something that I will take from here along with be like seaweed like commit but be fluid and all that beautiful stuff there and, um, you know, this role model for what shared leadership looks like, eminent and unavoidable passion that rises in people sometimes and being able to follow that. What, what, a, what an absolute treat it's been to talk to you. So thank you again, Tanya. Thank you, Sarah. It's you, you know, the fizzing that happens between us. That's what it is. Ah, yes, it is. the fizzing, the fizzing that happens fizzing between, that happens us. between us. She was just us. using her hands there, uh, to, <laughs> miming, miming fizzing with her fingers, which is gorgeous. I and, loved it. Um, me too. It was just brilliant. So um, thank you very much. This is the Legends Podcast, the very fucking creative series, season five. And um, I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. And it's been absolutely terrifically fascinating to listen to Tanya's today. So thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not, but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Furuya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Furuya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.